The words to which I should like to call your attention this morning are to be found in Paul's epistle to the Ephesians, the third chapter, verses 7 and 8. Verses 7 and 8 in the third chapter of Paul's epistle to the Ephesians. Whereof I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power unto me. Who am less than the least of all saints is this grace given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now you remember that the Apostle has been telling these Ephesians that uh, the great and uh, wonderful thing, the mystery which had been revealed unto him in particular is that they as Gentiles should come into the Christian church on an absolute equality with the Jews that they should be fellow heirs, fellow members of the body, and fellow partakers of the great promise that God had ever held out before his people. In other words, they now, with the Jews, are this new nation that God has formed for himself, and in whom and upon whom now all the great promises of God center, and in whom they are to be fulfilled. And he reminds them, that it was he who had the great privilege of informing them of all that. A very special dispensation of the grace of God had been given unto him in order that he might bring the message to them. And he had done so by preaching to them the gospel, the good news, this very thing about which he is now anxious to tell them. And so he takes up that particular thing. How he had been given this great privilege of preaching the gospel unto them. And as he thinks of it, you notice how he is moved and how he is carried away by the greatness and the glory of it all. There is nothing, nothing more moving, surely, in all this man's writings than this particular statement. Whereof I was made a minister, according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power, unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, is this grace given, that in order that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Very well, we must analyze this and look at it together and see its relevance to us at this present moment. What does he say then? Well, let us put it like this. His first statement is that he has been made a minister of the gospel. A minister is one who serves in the interests and for the benefits of others. That's the meaning of this word, a minister. And what he's saying is this, that this mystery had been revealed to him by God in order that he might teach the Gentiles, that he might give them this great benefit. There they were as aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise without hope and without God in the world in the darkness of paganism. And he has been given this dispensation of the grace of God in order that he might bring to them this great benefit. So he went and he preached to them. 
He was called to do that, and that was the thing that he was enabled to do. But the thing that he's anxious that they should realize is this, that all these benefits which they are now enjoying as fellow heirs, etc., with the Jews, have come to them through the gospel, the gospel which he had preached and of which he is a minister. Now, we haven't got time to do this this morning, but here is a very wonderful picture of the ministry, the Christian minister, and to what he is called. And I do feel at times that perhaps this is the first thing that the Christian church needs to recapture at this present hour. Paul says that he was called to exercise this ministry in the gospel. That's his calling. That's the thing that Christ laid his hand upon him for. And oh, how far we have departed from that. I wonder whether the Christian church isn't as she is this morning and counts so little in this modern world because of that. The whole idea of the ministry has become debased. It's been regarded often as a profession. The eldest son perhaps goes into the army or the navy and others go in for other things and then there's nothing left, as it were, for the remaining son but the Christian ministry. How often has it been looked upon in that way? The minister, what is he? Well, he's a man who's to organize games and uh, pleasant uh, entertainments for young people. He's a man who's to visit and have a pleasant cup of tea with people. That's the conception of the Christian ministry that has become much too current. But, my dear friends, it's a travesty. A minister is a herald of the glad tidings. He's a preacher of the gospel. He's a minister of the gospel. He's a prophet. And it seems to me that very largely, because this whole conception of the ministry has become debased, that the ministry has lost its authority. And as I say, counts for so little at the present time. Pray for the ministers, my friends. Pray, God, that at a time like this, that men and women shall, that men shall come back and have this old conception, this New Testament conception of the ministry. The world needs a Savonarola or two. Men and women need to be shaken out of their lethargy, out of their sinfulness, out of their indolence and slackness. It's needed in this country. And so I say that we are reminded thus hurriedly in passing of the Apostle's great conception of the Christian ministry. He is a minister of the gospel. We are called primarily to teach men and women concerning this great revelation of God, concerning himself, concerning men, concerning the only way of reconciliation, concerning the kind of life that mankind is meant to live. But I pass on to a second thing. The apostle expresses his amazement that this should ever have happened to him. You notice how he puts it unto me, who am less than the least of all saints. Was this grace given? Now, this isn't mock modesty. This isn't a kind of affectation. This isn't hypocrisy. And indeed, it is in no sense a contradiction of what he says elsewhere about himself, where he says that he is not behind the very chiefest apostles. You remember how he says that in writing to the Corinthians. Well, how do we reconcile them like this? What he never got over 
was the fact that the blaspheming and injurious Saul of Tarsus had ever been called not only into the Christian life but made an apostle and given this unique privilege of being in a very special manner the apostle to the Gentiles. He never forgot it. And it's a bad day in the life of any Christian when he forgets his origin, when he forgets the pit out of which he has been drawn. It isn't that we should look perpetually backwards and become morbid and perpetually remind ourselves of our sins, but the essence of the Christian position is that we should always realize that it is by grace we are saved, that we are what we are solely and entirely by the grace of God. And if we don't remember that, we'll lose our thanksgiving and our praise. We'll assume that all is well. Now, the apostle never got into that condition. He never forgot that. There he was, and here he is. Oh, this privilege, oh, the grace of God that has brought about this tremendous transfer. But I think there was another element in it. Here was a man who lived so near to Christ that he was conscious of his deficiencies, conscious of his shortcomings. Laboring as he did indefatigably, he was nevertheless conscious of how little he'd done, how much more he might have done. He expresses that in many places. So this is a true humility. This is a typical Christian meekness. I don't stay with this either, but let us note it as we pass. If a man isn't conscious of the honor and the dignity of being a Christian at all, and especially of having the privilege of preaching the gospel, is in a very false position. The more we realize these things, the more, I say, shall we be amazed with the Apostle Paul at this astounding grace and goodness and kindness of God. But come to a third thing. He explains to the Ephesians and to us how all this had come to him, how it had all happened to him. And you notice that again his explanation is that it is all of the grace of God. Do you notice how he keeps on repeating this word given? Whereof he says in verse 7, I was made a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given unto me by the effectual working of his power. Unto me who am less than the least of all saints. Is this grace given? This is the word that introduces the gospel and salvation. Given. It's all of grace. It's all given. The apostle didn't feel worthy of anything. Everything had been given to him freely in God's love and mercy and compassion. And if you and I, I say again, don't realize this, it's because our whole understanding of salvation is defective. But he tells us that it was given in a particular manner. It was given, he tells us, by the effectual working of his power. Now, unfortunately, the Revised Standard Version, which so many people are using today, is very weak at this point. It simply says, by the working of his power. But the word is much stronger. The authorized version is right. It is the effectual working of his power. Or, if you like it, you might translate it, the energetic working of his power. The word conveys that, that idea. Now, what is he saying? Well, what he's saying is this. What is it that turned that persecuting, 
blaspheming hater of Christ into one of the foremost preachers and apostles of Christ. Now there's the question. What is it that can produce such a change? You see, it's one of the fundamental questions uh, confronting us as we ever look at the gospel. What is it that can turn any man from being a hater of God into one who seeks God? What is it that can turn the natural men to whom the things of God are foolishness into a man who delights in them and who enjoys them and who lives for them and whose highest ambition is to know them more and more? What is it? Well, according to the apostle, there's only one answer. It is the effectual working of the power of God. Nothing else. And of course he was very conscious of it. If he had been left to himself, he would still have been the persecuting, blaspheming Pharisee. He had heard about the preaching of Christ. He may have heard some of the apostles preaching. He knew all the claims, but he hated it all. He saw nothing in it. He regarded it as blasphemy. What happened to this man? Well, there's only one answer. The man was entirely made anew. He was regenerated. He was made a new man. He says himself, it's a new creation. It's nothing less than that. There is no other explanation. And this is the result of the effectual working of the power of God. No man, I say again, can ever be a Christian except that God makes him a Christian. It is the effectual working of the power of God that makes everybody a Christian. That is the rebirth. That is regeneration. It isn't a decision. It isn't something that you and I decide to do. It is what is done to us. The effectual working of his power. Never, he would never have been a Christian at all were it not for this. But even having become a Christian, he would have been ineffective apart from this. It is this working, it is this power of God that not only transforms his whole outlook, but it calls him into the ministry, it gives him the gifts that are requisite to the ministry, the understanding of the ministry, the power to speak, the power to write, the power to teach, it's all of God. He works it out in great detail in the next chapter. He says that when Christ rose, he gave gifts unto men, some apostles, some prophets, it's all given by God. So ministers are given to the church by God. And every gift and help in the church is given by God. We are helpless in and of ourselves. No man can truly preach the gospel in his own strength and in his own power. He can talk perhaps, but it isn't preaching and it'll lead to nothing. Whenever there is an effectual ministry, it's because of this working, this energetic working of the power of God through the Holy Spirit. The whole thing, you see, that the apostle again he elaborates in 1 Corinthians 2 that his preaching was not with enticing words of man's wisdom. He doesn't depend upon human organizations and abilities, but in demonstration of the spirit and of power. That's it. And here again he brings it in. He's received all this. He's been put into his position by the energetic working of his power. My friends, do we know anything about this? Have you felt the hand of God upon you? Do you know God's working in your own life and in your own soul? Do you know what it is to be dealt with and to be molded and to be fashioned? That's Christianity. It's all the result of the energetic working of his power. Indeed, the apostle sums this up very perfectly in a great phrase 
in the first chapter of the epistle to the Colossians in verse 29. He's been saying that he preaches warning every man, teaching every man, that he may present every man perfect in Christ Jesus, whereunto I also labor, he is laboring, striving according to his working, which worketh in me mightily. Now that's a wonderful picture of it all. I am laboring, says Paul. I'm working. I'm, as it were, agonizing in my labors. Yes, but what is this? It's the result of what he's doing to me and working in me. I'm working out what he's working in. I'm laboring. Yes, but according to this tremendous working of God, which worketh in me mightily. And so you get this perfect blending, if you like, of the divine and the human. The power of God energizing a man and enabling him to carry on his work in the ministry. Well now then, here we are. The apostle says that he has thus been prepared and equipped and called in every way in order that he might preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. What a phrase. What a profound, what a sublime statement. What a moving statement. Ah, yes, but it's a statement that also comes and tests us and examines us. I don't hesitate to assert, therefore, that the test of all preaching is its conformity to this definition and to this standard. Here is a man who's being called to be a minister of the gospel. What's the business of a minister of the gospel? Well, here is his answer. To preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Now, let's note this. And let's see, therefore, how he tests a great deal of probably what is happening this morning. What is the business of the Christian minister, the preacher of the gospel, at any time? I say it is always to do this. What is the business of the Christian preacher? Let's observe what it isn't. It is not simply to preach about current events. Shall I test you? Were you a little bit surprised that I went on with this consideration of Ephesians 3 this morning? Did you have a feeling within you for a second? Oh, I thought you'd have interrupted that series in view of what's happening in the world at this moment. I thought that there would have been some pronouncement on the international situation. Did you? Is that the business of the Christian minister? Is it the business of the Christian minister to express his views as to what the government should have done last week or what it shouldn't have done? There are people who are doing that. I've no doubt it's being done in thousands of pulpits this day, in this and in other lands, and there are men expressing opinions on, on the international situation who it seems to me are not in a position to do so. I do not claim that I know any more about the international situation than any one of you. I haven't all the facts before me. And for me to express an opinion would be an impertinence. I have my views like you all have, but I am in no position to stand and address a company like this in a Christian pulpit and say whether I think the government has done the right thing or the wrong thing. I haven't all the facts before me. And in any case, I say, it is not the business of the Christian minister. And I have a feeling that it is because the church has so often done that kind of thing that not only is the church as she is, but the world is as she is. I think there's very powerful evidence to prove 
that it was the action of the church and certain people in the church in particular in the 1930s that almost directly produced the last war. An impression was given to Hitler and others in Germany that this country had gone completely pacifist and wouldn't fight for anything. And I think it's a very dangerous thing for men, whatever their position in the church, however exalted, to express their opinions. The Christian minister is called to preach the unsearchable riches of Christ. Let me make this quite plain. It isn't the business of the Christian minister to express his opinions, his criticisms, his agreement or disagreement. It is not the business of the Christian church to preach patriotism either. It's often done so. The church has often been nothing but a recruiting sergeant and a recruiting station, and it's a travesty of the Christian ministry. The business of the Christian minister is not any one of these things. It's this other thing that the apostle is talking about. My friends, the world was in trouble when Paul wrote these things. The world has always been in trouble. But the peculiar business and task of the church is to do what the apostle tells us here. Far too often, the Christian church and the Christian minister has been nothing but some kind of court chaplain. Indulging in vague generalities. No, no, I say, that's not the business of preaching. Neither is it the business of preaching just to preach and to inculcate a general morality or some general ethic. There's been a great deal of this during the last hundred years. And the ministry has become less and less prophetic. And Christianity has become more and more diluted. The business of Christianity is not to produce the perfect little gentleman. No, no, that isn't its business. The world can preach morality and ethics and has always done so in some shape or form. The philosophers can do that. That isn't the business. The unsearchable riches of Christ. The Jews were teaching morality. The pagan philosophers have been preaching a morality before Paul was ever called into the ministry. He isn't doing any of those things. This is his test. Let me go further. The business of the preaching of the gospel is not merely to preach religion, I think. Not even religion, not even godliness in general. Because, you see, Judaism had been doing that. Judaism had been preaching the importance of religion, the vital importance of godliness. Let me go further. It is not the primary business of the preacher of the gospel even to tell people to pray and to conform to certain standards and to discipline themselves. Mohammedanism does that very effectively indeed. It preaches a very stern discipline. It preaches a very rigid kind of devotion. It preaches a worship of God. That's not Christianity. You can have godliness, in a sense, without Christianity. It's a false godliness, I know. But it is a kind of godliness. And you can have religion, and you can have all these things. That isn't what Paul has been called to preach. He'd been doing all that as a Pharisee. I go one step further. It is not the business of Christian preaching even to teach and to preach the teaching of Christ with regard to certain specific matters. Now I have no doubt that in thousands of pulpits today there will be only one message, and that is the message of pacifism, a particular teaching. And there are men who seem to reduce the unsearchable riches of Christ to just pacifism. They're preaching on it every Sunday. War is the absolute sin. And if we only behaved in a nice way to other people and didn't fight about anything, we'd be much happier. That's the whole of Christianity. Is that the unsearchable riches of Christ? 
You see, my friends, all these things fall hopelessly short of this great and wondrous definition of the gospel which is given us by the apostle in this great word that we're looking at together this morning. Think of all these pompous pronouncements upon the international situation. Where does the unsearchable riches of Christ come in? And all the ethical moral appeals and appeals in the name of the country and all these things. Where does Christ and his eternal riches come into it all? It's a travesty. It's a waste of time. It's an abnegation of the duty which devolves upon us. Very well then, what does he preach? Well, none of those things I say but this. Primary and essentially, the Lord Jesus Christ himself. You see, it's the riches, the unsearchable riches of Christ, which obviously means this, that the essence of the gospel is what Christ gives to us. Not what we do, not what he, even he asks us to do. That comes later. But the obvious beginning and essence of the gospel is what he gives us, what we receive from him. I, Paul is thrilling at the very thought of it. He says, I was given this great privilege of coming to you, and I've given you the good news, the marvelous, the thrilling good news of what? Well, of the riches of Christ, what Christ has given to you, and what he can and what he will give to you. The unsearchable riches of Christ. What he gives, it's the gift of God before it's any call to anything at all. Well, now then, what does this mean? Well, let me try to analyze it. And as I do so, I almost feel I'm being ridiculous. You can't analyze this, and yet I know that there is such a tendency in us all uh, just to repeat these resounding phrases without knowing what they mean that we must analyze them. And the apostle, fortunately himself, goes on to analyze them in the remainder of the chapter. What are the unsearchable riches of Christ? Well, the first thing we must emphasize is this. It is Christ himself. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Not first of all the unsearchable riches that he has to give us, but the unsearchable riches that is Christ. Christ himself. Now this includes, of course, what we were dealing with last Sunday, the mystery, what he calls the mystery of Christ. And the riches are in him because of the mystery of his incarnation and his taking unto himself human nature and becoming truly men. Yes, but we've dealt with that, so we go on. The message of Christianity is Christ himself. As has often been pointed out, Christianity is Christ. Everything is in him and there is nothing apart from him. God has put everything into his Son. And everything that you and I ever derive in the Christian life is derived from him, directly. Without contact with him, we have nothing. Apart from me, he said, he can do nothing. John puts it in the first chapter of his gospel in this way. Of his fullness have all we received, and grace upon grace, of his fullness, we are united to him and we draw from him. He is the fountainhead. So that we have to pay particular attention to this. The message of the gospel is Christ himself before even what Christ gives. 
Then I look at his second word, which is the word unsearchable. Oh, this is the whole of Christianity. If we could but see what is in Christ. It's unsearchable, if you like, untraceable. It's again, of course, like our definition of the mystery. It's there and uh, it is revealed. But thank God that it has been revealed, otherwise we'd know nothing at all about it. It's unsearchable, it's untraceable. What does he mean? He means this. No man can ever find those riches in and of himself. Many a man has tried to do so. Many a man has approached Christianity philosophically. He's tried to understand it from the outside. He might as well have given up at the beginning. It can never be done. They're untraceable. They're unsearchable. Man is inadequate to get at them. They're so carefully preserved. They're in such a unique position. Man can never arrive at them by his own unaided understanding. But I want to say another thing about them. These riches that are in Christ are unsearchable in this respect. That no man, not even the Christian, can ever fully comprehend them. Paul, as he went on, was more and more amazed at them. He thought at last, ah, I've got it, but he hadn't got it. He thought he'd been to every room in this great treasury, and then he found another. There's always an inner room, and an inner, and an inner. And you know, we'll spend eternity in just discovering further reaches of the unsearchable riches of Christ. Unsearchable. Untraceable. So I say another thing that it means is this. They can never be fully described. Even Paul couldn't. That's why you see as the pile is superlative on top of a superlative. Language fails him. The unsearchable riches, the exceeding riches of his grace, he says. He talks about superabundant here and there. He is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we can ask or think. Those are his terms. It just means that they're unsearchable. They cannot be described simply because they're so glorious and so endless. And that's the next thing that it means. The riches of Christ are unsearchable. Thank God for this. It means that they are inexhaustible. It means that they are endless. It means that they can never fail. It means that though men and women uh, for all the centuries have been drawing from them and taking of them, there is still as much as there was at the beginning, and it can never become less. It's a never-ebbing sea, as one of the writers of the hymns puts it. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Beloved people, do we know anything about this? Are we thrilled at the very term? Does it mean something concrete to us? What are these unsearchable riches of Christ? Well, as I say, they can't be described, but they're facts. So let me try to mention some of them. Look at it like this, if you like. What is there in Christ for any one of us this morning? Well, I'm told there are unsearchable riches. Well, let me look at it in this way. I am poor. I am empty-handed. I'm a pauper. What do I need? Well, he's got everything that I need. What are the things I need? Let me take up a phrase of Paul out of the first epistle to the Corinthians. He says, who of God is made unto us wisdom and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. There are the riches, the unsearchable riches. But look at it from the standpoint of our need. What do we need? The first thing we need is wisdom, knowledge, understanding. 
Here we are in this great mad world, perplexing in its fury. The first thing we want to know is this, what is it all about? Why is men as he is? Is there God? Where is God doing something? How can I know God? If the world is collapsing round and about me, is there no place of steadiness and of steadfastness? It's in God. How can I know God? That's our fundamental and primary need. And that is our need, my friends. And that's why I'm not preaching about the international situation. I wouldn't help you if I preached about that. But this is my way of helping you. If you and I know God, well then what we've read in Psalm 112 is true of us. He shall not fear evil tidings. His heart is fixed, resting upon his God. Now then, how can I arrive at this knowledge and this wisdom? There's only one answer. It is in Christ. He of God is made unto us wisdom. Work it out for yourselves. What else do I need? Well, now then, he teaches me about God, but that makes me conscious of my sinfulness. And I say, how can I dare to approach such a God? I'm in agony, I'm in a crisis. Think of a Christian in Budapest this morning. Think of a man, any man in Budapest, who sees everything going, and he wants to know God and to be right with God. He may be dead before tonight. What can he do? How can he stand before God? He's a sinner vile. Christ is made unto us righteousness. Though you've lived a life of sin and of hell until you came into this service, you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Your sins are forgiven and you will be clothed with the righteousness of Jesus Christ at this very moment. And you can stand in the presence of God. Righteousness. The unsearchable riches. Yes, but it doesn't finish there. You say, I want to go on. How can I continue with God? Though I know I'm forgiven and given the righteousness of Christ, I know that sin is still within me and I know the devil is still outside. How can I stand up in this fight against evil and sin? Oh, the riches of Christ are unsearchable, they're endless. He has made unto us not only wisdom and righteousness, but also sanctification. If you and I are to die the next minute, we can be sure of this, that in Christ... We will stand before God faultless and blameless. His sanctification. He is our sanctification. In addition to working it out within us. And indeed he is redemption. Which means this. That he will raise the body and glorify it and change it. The redemption is complete and entire. There will be nothing lacking. Well there you are. Look at it like that. In your poverty. In your need. There you are confronted by the unsearchable riches of Christ. He has everything you need. Ransomed, healed, restored, forgiven. Who like me his praise should sing. Or take it like this. What do we really need? What's our greatest need? Well, in a sense, our greatest need is life, isn't it? At a time like this, we tend to see, don't we, that men and women are just existing. They haven't got life. And you see, when their pleasures are shut off, when because of war the cinemas and theatres and public houses and dance halls have to be shut, they've got nothing. They haven't got life. They're existing and dependent upon things. They need life. Where can you get life? And it's he again who has said it, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. Life which means spiritual life. Life which means a relationship to God and an enjoyment of his fellowship. That's life. 
and he has it in all its fullness. And he says, he that cometh unto me shall never hunger and never thirst. The water that I give you, says he to the woman of Samaria, shall be in you a well of water springing up into everlasting life. So let the world take everything from you, though you may be naked and bereft of all things. Life will still go on bubbling up eternally within you. But let me say just a word about this. The apostle works it out in detail at the, in the, at the end of this great chapter, but I must mention it here. The unsearchable riches of Christ. There's the beginning, reconciling us to God. But you know this is still more wonderful. Christ himself, he is the riches. And you see, it is as I know him and possess him that I am a participator in the riches. And this is the thing that Paul goes on saying. He had a personal knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's the richest thing in the world. We have a saying, haven't we? And it's perfectly true. That the greatest blessing we have in this world, in and of itself, is to have a husband or a wife or a friend. We say that it's the most priceless possession. And it's true. Under God, it is the greatest gift of all. Ah, but you see, in the gospel, you are offered this knowledge and this friendship of Christ. The apostle puts it like this in writing to the Philippians. To me to live, he says, is Christ. That is life to me. To know Christ, that's his life. Then he says his greatest ambition is this, that I might know him. No, he doesn't mean to know about him. He means to know him so that he can go and talk to him and listen to him. That is how Paul lived. He was in this state of communion with Christ. He knows him. He's nearer to him and dearer to him and more real to him than anything in the world. That's what he has and he wants it more and more. And then he prays, of course, for others that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. You see, there's the riches of Christ. He comes into your heart and he dwells there. He says it himself, doesn't he? Behold, he says, I stand at the door and knock. If any man shall open unto me, I will enter in. And I will take up my abode with him and I will sup with him and he with me. Now there is it, you see. The whole riches and treasures of God are in Christ and he comes into your life and into your heart and he dwells in us. Christ in us, the hope of glory. Here is the unsearchable riches. But let me elaborate that in one word. The thing that the apostle goes on to pray for these Ephesians is this. That they being strengthened with all might by the Spirit in the inner men that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. What for? Well, that they may know the height and the depth and the length and the breadth, and to know the love of Christ which passeth knowledge. There's nothing more wonderful in the whole world than that, than to be loved by Christ and to feel it and to know it. Oh, what are the riches of the Indies and the whole universe in comparison with this? To be loved by the Son of God. The unsearchable riches of Christ. And then go on. What does he give us when he comes thus to us? Well, the first thing he gives is his own Holy Spirit. I indeed baptize you with water, says John the Baptist. He shall baptize you with the Holy Ghost 
and with fire. The baptism of the Holy Ghost, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit, resident within us, and our knowing that, and his power activating us. And what does he give us? Well, now, these are the things that are needed by the world this morning, are they not? First, he gives us rest. Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Have you got it? He's got it there superabundantly. What else? Peace. Listen to him. Peace I give unto you, my peace I give unto you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let they be afraid. Thank God I decided to preach the gospel and not about the Suez Canal. How would I have helped you by preaching about the international situation? But here is the message. Peace I give unto you, whatever may be happening to you. Young men, you may be called to fight. You may be called to the army. I don't know. We may enter war. I don't know. But I know that what we need is this. Peace within. Whatever may happen outside. And he gives it his peace. In nothing be anxious, therefore, says Paul. In nothing be anxious or be crushed by anxious care. Whether your husband's going to be called up, what's going to happen to your children, don't be anxious. But in all things with prayer and supplication and thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God. And then the peace of God that passeth all understanding shall keep your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. That's the riches. And then think of the joy. Hitherto he says, ye have asked nothing in my name, ask, and you shall receive, that your joy may be full. And the context is, in the world ye shall have tribulation. But fear not, I have overcome the world. Or do you need wisdom? If any man lacketh wisdom, let him ask of God. Who giveth liberally and upbraideth not, giveth liberally, you notice, the riches of his wisdom. He'll give it you. Guidance, understanding, all you need in Christ. And then, perhaps the most wonderful thing of all, the ability to be content, whatever may take place. And Paul says he's enjoying it. I have learned in whatsoever state I am, Therein to be content. I know both how to be a best and I know how to abound. I can do all things. No limit to it. I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. What a way to face the future. Dark and troublesome as it is, whatever may happen, you can face it quietly and steadily. I can do all things through Christ which strengthens me. This is the message of the gospel. And then, of course, you will find that he'll transfigure death. To me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Oh, the riches of his grace. The blessed hope that he holds out before us, that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ. Though the atomic bomb and the hydrogen bomb be used, and our world be blasted to nothing, there remaineth an inheritance, a blessed hope, that nothing can ever touch, that nothing can ever rob us of. Well, I haven't started telling you about the riches, but there are some of the things that you find thus in the treasure house of his grace. My dear friends, 
Are you enjoying these riches? The unsearchable riches of Christ. Are you unhappy? Are you miserable? Are you troubled? Are you perplexed? Do you feel you're bereft of everything? Oh, I say, God have mercy upon you. With all the treasures there freely given, we have no right to be, and we are a disgrace to Christ if we are like that. Are you enjoying Christ himself? He stands at the door and knocks. That's not a text for the unconverted. It's a text to the converted. It's a message to the church of Laodicea. He's standing at your door and knocking. He wants to come in and fill you with peace and joy and all you need. Let him in. Do we contemplate these riches? Do we dwell upon them? Are we thrilled as we think of them? Are we receiving them more and more? Is your desire for them greater and greater and greater? Do you live for these things? How are you going to spend the rest of this day in this critical hour? How are you going to spend the rest of the day? Is it in terms of the unsearchable riches of Christ? Or are you going to fall back on the newspapers or on some novel or on some biography? Here it all is and infinitely more and endless. And are you going to pray and intercede for our fellow Christians in Hungary and in other lands? The unsearchable riches of Christ. Is your desire greater and greater? Well, my dear friends, if it isn't, I'm afraid, it's because we are like the Laodiceans who thought, you remember, that they'd got everything and were very rich. And this is the message of the Son of God to them. Because thou sayest, I am rich and increased with goods, because you tend to say, I'm converted, I'm not like those unbelievers. I'm a, a fundamentalist and not a modernist. I'm all right, and I can sit down and relax and spend a quiet Sunday. If you think so, you're beca it's because you think you have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Are you rich in Christ? Or are you very doubtful where you are and what you have? Well, if so, this is his counsel. I counsel thee to buy of me gold tried in the fire, that thou mayest be rich, and clothing and a garment that shall cover thy nakedness, and anoint thine eyes with eye salve, that thou mightest see, beloved people, there, for all who believe in him, are the unsearchable riches of Christ. God forbid that any of us should live like paupers. God forbid that any of us should be in penury and need and want and trouble and alarm and unsteadiness and excitement. I feel that the world is presenting us with a unique opportunity of telling them about the unsearchable riches of Christ. We are being watched, we are being observed, and men and women are wondering whether after all the answer isn't in Christ, but it will judge him by what it sees in us. And if we give the impression that Christ doesn't help very much after all when there's a crisis, they won't look at him. But if they find that we are absolutely different from them and maintaining this calm and balance and peace and pious and even joy in the midst of the hurricane, under God, it may be the means of opening their eyes and leading them to repentance and bringing them 
to the Lord Jesus Christ. The unsearchable riches of Christ. Let us take off them and go on and tell others about them. Amen.